Ronananian. Supposedly, the ambition of the government is sometime in the next seven to eight years to have self-driving cars on the road by overwhelming popularity. Caution, caution, there is danger. Hold on tight, you know she's a little bit dangerous. She's got what it takes to make ends meet. The eyes of a lover that hit like heat. You know she's a little bit dangerous. A little bit dangerous. The car doctor. When I get in the car, I want to hold that steering wheel. I want to be in control. Would you trust a self-driving car? No. My micro mechanism thanks you. My computer tapes thank you. And I thank you. Welcome to the radio home of Ron and Anian, the car doctor. Since 1991, this is where car owners the world over turn to for their definitive opinion on automotive repair. If your mechanic's giving you a busy signal, pick up the phone and call in. The garage doors are open. But I am here to take your calls at 855-560-9900. And now, here's Ronnie. Hey, come on in. Sit down. Ron Nadine, the car doctor, at your service at 855-560-9900. Here to take your calls and answer your questions. We're taking no prisoners today as the phone lines are already backed up and lit up. Just to make you aware, there's more information of this radio show at cardoctorshow.com. You can find links to tune in, iHeart, iTunes.com. If you need me during the week, Ron at cardoctorshow.com. And I'm all fired up and ready to go here. A little quick welcome. We have a special studio guest. Mom is with us today. Wave, Mom. Everybody on radio can see you. There she is. Everybody wave hello to Mom. Mom's uh, watching the show today. She hasn't been here in a while. We thought we'd uh, get her out of her room and uh, let her come down and uh, see radio, as it were, as uh, we do the big show. She says, you know, I've heard it all the time. She goes, but I've never really seen you do it. So uh, we're showing off for Mom today something uh, we thought would be a fun thing to do. We have an interview-free hour. Actually, we have an interview-free two hours Today, we're all about calls today. We're all about answering your car questions. But I real quick wanted to plant this seed, and then I'm going to move on. Um, I want to talk a little bit about obligation. I want to talk about obligation of the repair shop. And I want to talk about obligation of you, the consumer, the vehicle owner, the person that's driving that car, that's making that decision on when and how it should be repaired. Had a couple of weird, well, unsettling phone calls at the shop this week. One was a gentleman. He's been listening to the show for five, six years. I'm sure he'll get this on podcast, maybe longer. He's been listening. He had a 99 Chevy van with a cam sensor fault that he had an engine replaced, he had some work done to it, nobody's been able to diagnose it, and it fell into my lap as, can you fix this, I'm going on vacation for three weeks, I'd like you to look at it. As much as I hated to do it, I had to turn it down. Number one, we're backed up until about the middle of September, or about six weeks out on drivability right now, before I can get my head into anything else, because I've got so many other things going on in the shop on a day-to-day basis. But also, middle of August, we're going to take a week off and do nothing, so approaching that time period, I tend to kind of cool things down a little bit. I don't want to get backed up and have any bigger drivability issues than I've got right now waiting for me than the cars I'm into currently. And it seemed to miff him, for lack of a technical term. And when I asked Fast Harry about it, because Harry was the one answering the call, uh, you know, he said he didn't sound happy. And, you know, I'm sorry he's not happy, but I think the question comes down to as long as more people swear by me than at me, I'm ahead of the curve. But it's also like... Why are we still at this point in the relationship of not having a relationship with a mechanic? And I ask that of everybody. If you're 20 years old and you're driving a car, I get it why you don't have a mechanic. If you're 25, I'm questioning it. If you're 30, you're doing something wrong. You're allowing something to exist in your life that prevents you from finding a good mechanic. They're out there. You've got to look further. Maybe you're like the gentleman that called the shop with the 98 Mercury Mystique yesterday afternoon. 
wanted a price on putting an alternator into it. Didn't want a diagnosis, just wanted the alternator replaced in it. And I said, oh, you mean the Mercury Mystique where you have to pull the drive axle out in order to get the alternator out, and it's a two- to three-hour job because it's just a nightmare? And he was shocked to hear that. But I'm going to get you the part. Well, gee, now you're really enticing me to not want to work on this car because where's my opportunity to make a profit, to make some repair money so I can pay the bills and keep the lights on and pay for the scan tools that I have to use? And he didn't quite understand it. And my point is obligation goes both ways. Relationships go both ways. You need to develop one with a mechanic if you ever have a hope of getting something fixed in the future going forward because I absolutely guarantee you Cars are not going to get simpler from this moment on. They're going to get much more difficult. Just something to think about. Hello and welcome. Ron and Annie and the Car Doctor here as always at 855-560-9900. Not to sound arrogant, and I've been accused of being that as well. And uh, I look forward to those people because arrogant means that, you know what? I'm just doing my job. I'm just trying to fix cars. And it's not that I'm better than anybody else. I just happen to be the lucky guy behind the microphone. But uh, sometimes thinking you're a little arrogant and being arrogant helps you fix cars. It give you a little bit of an ego so that you don't give up as easy, and that's the name of the game. Never give up. Every car can be fixed. Let's kick the garage doors open. Let's go talk to Clyde in Lewiston, Idaho, and we welcome him with his 91 Volkswagen. Clyde, welcome to the car doctor, sir. How can I help? Well, I've got this 91 VW four-cylinder with a Digifont. You might have heard of it. Oh, yeah, Digifont, and... Digifont Volkswagens. Yeah, you need it. You, the one thing you need to fix those is is a digital volt meter because they were a very electronic vehicle, even for 91. Um, so what's going on with it? Well, it, everything was fine until about a month ago, and it started getting a weird idle. And now it, it starts fine cold and hot. But on a cold start, it'll rev up to about 2,500, and then it'll almost stall. Maybe it will stall, rev up a couple of more times. And now when you're driving around, you take your foot off the gas, it idles at 1,500. Okay. Other than that, it drives all right. It's got power, but uh, what, I've what sort of tools? Do I you have, have not checked the grounds because about a year ago, I had to replace the oxygen sensor, and I made sure all those grounds were good then. Okay. Maybe I'll have to do it again. No. Well, let's let's back up. You have a digital voltmeter. I'm sure you do by the sounds of it. Oh yeah. You, okay. So why don't we go and let's take it. There's 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 three critical sensors. There's three or four critical things to look at when the idle starts acting up on these cars. Um, go to the engine coolant temp sensor. All right. Yeah, the coolant temp sensor when you when you unplug it. Right. When it when it's having. Oh, I've tested it both at hot and at cold, and it matches the factory specs. Okay, it ohms out correctly. Yes. All right. Then let's go. I've also removed the oxygen sensor and put the torch test on it. Yeah, but all an oxygen sensor torch test does is heat it up. It doesn't tell you what the oxygen content is. Yeah, so so that's all, right. all I did with that. So if if you want to really see what the O2 sensor is doing, why don't you put the DVOM on it and just plug it in and go to the signal line and just look and see where the voltage is. You could track it with a DVOM. You could track it with a lab scope. You should be able to get a nice true pattern to see what's coming out of the O2 sensor. Of course, what the computer's seeing might be a whole other story. And in 91, you're going to need some kind of special scan tool to read data stream. But they're out there. They're they're older now. You've got to realize how old that car is. I'm sure you do. Uh, where I was going yeah. to send you to, to take a look is start to look at the voltage at the mass airflow sensor. Uh-huh. Particularly between pins four and three. One's brown, white. One's blue, black. That should between be a... That between three and four, right? Between three and four. You should, have, right. you should have five volts or something close. All right. All right? If you don't... 
then you've got a problem somewhere in the wiring leading up to the mass air, and that was common too. Mass airs, also, you want to take a look at pin two, and this is Mm -hmm. key on, engine off, okay? All right. Pin two. Engine on, but engine run. Right, right. Engine off. Go to pin two. It's a blue-red. You should see about a volt and a half. Start the engine. The engine at idle will then go from about a volt and a half to about 1.82 volts. The voltage should increase as the RPM increases. Okay. If it starts to climb higher than 1.8, 1.9 volts, chances are you've got a bad mass airflow or a problem in the way the mass airflow is interpreting air. Maybe you've got an air leak ahead of it or behind it. I'm sorry, behind it. All right, I will check those things. Okay, but the most the most critical, it still comes back to coolant temp sensor on those cars. That was the number one cause of erratic idle, and I would almost encourage you, because of the age of the car, is go find those wiring, those those, those wires as they lead into the PCM, mm-hmm. and, and make sure the signal you're getting at the sensor are the same that what you're getting at the PCM itself. Okay, what I've done, I haven't done that, and will do it, but when it's uh, when it settles down and you're driving it and the idle is r- about 1,500, if you unplug the CTS at that point, it'll go down to idle at about 1,000, but it's rough as a cob. Right, because you're, you're taking it out of, you're, you're putting it into what we'll, I'll call it limp mode at that point. Okay. Uh, you know, that's what we used to do when we wanted to set timing on the, on the early cars, and y- you're, actually, you're actually skewing the picture if you will. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, that's a proper response, but that still doesn't tell us if the response it was getting when it was plugged in was any good. Yeah. So check, the, check that this, the CTS is actually wired to the correct pins on the, on the ECU. Well, check, that the, check, check that the signal coming out of the ECT, the signal you see at the ECT should be the same at the PCM itself. How do we know there isn't damage to the wiring harness somewhere along the way? The car is now almost 30 years old. That's right. So just just ECT was the most critical input on those cars. Yeah, ECT. A minute ago we called it CTS. Is right. it the same part? Same thing. Yeah. Okay. Good. Same thing. So I'll do that. Check the MMF volts and take it from there. Take it from there and then give me a call back and let me know. Oh, well, I really appreciate your your information and I look forward to fixing this thing. Uh, you will. It's easy. It's only a car. All right, Clyde. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right, brother. You take good care. 855-560-9900. Ron and Annie in the car doctor at your service. I'll be back right after this. Gee, I wonder what's next. What's up, Doc? I'm sure he'll find that for next week. But uh, a tip of the wrench to my chief engineer, Tom Ray, and the things that he comes up with to keep this show fresh. Thanks, Tom. Let's get out and go over and talk to – let's go talk to Tom in Wisconsin, 98 F-150, and some uh, vacuum leak issues. Tom, welcome to the car, Doctor, sir. How can I help? 
Well, first of all, Ron, you got a great program. Uh, okay, so I've got a vacuum leak. It's a pretty good one because when I shut the engine off, uh, it's only a matter of seconds before I even lose my brake booster vacuum. Okay. But here, here's what I've tried to do, and you tell me if this makes any sense or maybe I shouldn't be doing it. I can't hear anything on there when the engine's running, so what I've done is I've just opened up a vacuum line and leave the engine off and put a remote vacuum pump connected through a 20-foot line on there. Uh, is that bad, or can, is that worth a try? Well, what's that going to accomplish? What do we, what do we, we've got a vacuum leak, the engine's running rough, has it set any check engine light fault, has it... No, no check engine light, and it actually runs good. That's what's interesting. When I'm uh, when I'm going down the highway on the level, no problem. But my air conditioning vents drop out uh, when the engine tries to accelerate for a slight heel or something like that. Okay, what what so, makes you think this isn't a leaking power brake booster? Then, if you lose the pedal, it gets hard immediately when you shut it off. Well, it's not immediate, but it's quick, and maybe it is. So if that's the case, I don't have the knowledge to know how to find that or fix that or figure out where it is. Okay. So what's your? If, let's start over a minute, Tom. If, if we were having a drink in a, in a bar over a couple of adult beverages and you said to me, hey, Ron, my truck does, your answer would be, what's wrong with your truck? I, what is it actually doing? Okay. Uh, here's the main thing it's doing. It runs fine, starts fine, does everything good. It's just the way I noticed this problem was going down the highway, noticing that my air conditioning seems to drop out completely, which I assume that's because the vacuum actuators for the uh, vents are are losing their priority or something. And so uh, I can sense that it's almost like my air conditioning shuts off until I get over a little knoll, then it comes on, works fine. Okay. Until the engine has to work. So if you didn't have the air conditioning on, you would never know there's anything wrong with this truck? You know, I may not, but it also, I'm, I'm assuming that maybe it's also in all the ventilation, but I don't know. I, I don't know. Okay, so let's let's assume, dangerous word, family radio, that we've got a vacuum loss feeding the reservoir system or the reserve system for the air conditioning. All right? There's going to be okay. a res- there's going to be a red vacuum line that leads up to the reserve tank, which will be under hood on that particular truck. Take a look over on the passenger side, underneath the battery tray. Okay. All right. The battery on this truck is on the right side, if I remember right. Uh, if you're sitting in the seat, yes. Yeah. If you're sitting in the seat, always as you're sitting in the seat, the vacuum yep. tank should be under the battery tray that's also if this is four-wheel drive that'll be the reserve vacuum tank for the four-wheel drive if they're vacuum actuated hubs all right so everything will be over there what used to happen is if the battery had any kind of acid leaks or corrosion it would drip down onto the plastic lines because where else would you put them you'd put the plastic underneath the battery that's way it'll it'll rot and fall apart and it would corrode everything and cause all kinds of dysfunctionality so what i would be looking for is Coming off the back of the engine, there's going to be a hard red plastic vacuum line. On a Ford, red was always manifold vacuum. That was that was the feed coming off the engine, going out to feed whatever circuit it was trying to, uh, uh, you know, charge. So in, in this case, it's going to be that that hard nylon plastic line feeding the reservoir tank, and then from the reservoir tank, it'll branch out, possibly in a purple or a purple tinted or in an orange-striped vacuum line that then goes out and feeds the vacuum control units under the dash. All right? Yeah. Do you have a handheld vacuum gauge? 
Something with a needle? Uh, actually, I don't, but I can come up with one. Okay, because you find that red vacuum line, and just make sure you've got solid vacuum there, and then you're going to have to pull the battery to get to this if you see that okay. it's there. And then start doing your testing with that vacuum pump to find where it's where it's actually leaking. Usually, okay. I, I find a broken nipple or a rotted line. Okay. All right, and that's where you want to be. All right, and then just one quick thing. If yeah. I can hear, if I, if I do put a vacuum on and I won't allow it to go to like 20-inch vacuum, if I can hear a leak, is that going to steer me in the direction, or are there yes. other things that yes. maybe have a little vacuum relief? If, you, if you've got the dashboard controls in the on position and you yeah. either hand pump it, and that's how you would do it, or apply a vacuum pump just to hold vacuum on the system, it should hold vacuum. Vacuum is vacuum. But a bad ble- okay. a bad blend door actuator or a bad temp lever, a bad uh, vacuum control on the dash, all of those can lead to and cause a problem in vacuum bleed-off in this system. All right. Well, that's very helpful, Ron. I just love your program. Thank you very much. You're very welcome, sir. You take good care. Let's roll over. Let's get started with Walt in Maui, Hawaii, 2002 Dodge Ram. Walter, how are you today? What's hey, going on? Morning, Ron. Yes, sir. What's cooking? Okay, I got a... Uh, a- Trouble code of P1698. I have a dash that has, for the mileage, should, it shows no bus. I've got uh, an ABS and seatbelt, et cetera, lights staying on, and none of the instrument gauges are working. Everything else runs fine. It runs fine. Okay. Um, just come on overnight, Walt. It just sort of started up on its own? Yes. And what have you done to try and diagnose it? Anything? Well, I... I I first I checked to make sure the batteries were both good and that I load tested them, and I of course voltage tested them. Right. And I pulled the code, the P sixteen ninety eight, and uh, I from that point I said, no, I'm not sure where to go. Yeah. Unfortunately, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to get intimate with the uh, CCD bus wires um, down at the data link connector. Um, this okay. might be this might be easier if I email you the information. Um, I, I, I can go over it with you here, but it's very tedious and time consuming. So do this: send me an email, Walt Ron at CarDoctorShow.com. And then, if anybody else needs this information, anybody else out there is a very specific issue. This is all about wiring at pins three and eleven at the data link connector, and it's a step by step process. I'm glad to send it out to you, Walter. I think that would be easier for you. But P sixteen ninety eight general results in this. Do that. I'll take care of it. I'm running any in the car, doctor. We're back right after this. Doctor rolling along this hour at 855-560-9900. Each and every week, folks, we get to do this. If you're an affiliate taking this radio show and you're maybe on delayed broadcast, let me remind you that 855-560-9900 is a 24-7 hotline. Fast Harry, our executive producer, should you decide to leave a message at 855-560-9900, we'll call you back and put you in the lineup for the following week. And we can talk to you about your car problem. We are live Saturdays, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time, should you wish to call in on the 855 number. Let's get over and talk to, oh, let's start at the top there. Let's go to Don in uh, South Williamsport, 05 Denali, with some questions about an airbag. Don, welcome to the car doctor, sir. How can I help? Hey, Ron. Thank you. Uh, welcome. We bought an 05 Yukon Denali that was in a front-end 
collision with a deer. Okay. And um, the airbag was deployed. Yep. Yeah, you usually lose in that situation. And they put the whole front end back together again right. on this car, all new parts and stuff. Right. And the airbag, they put a brand new airbag in it, and they bought a control module for it, and they told us, they'd never installed it, but they told us that this would clear the service airbag message that's on the front of the screen. And... I'm just wondering if there's something more to it, but I thought I'd call you because your opinion really makes a difference. Well, when when you say they, who's they? The body shop? The dealer? Who? Yeah, the body shop. The body know. shop. Okay. So just back, fill me in a little bit here. You, you had the accident. They fixed the car. You took the car back. The airbag light was still on or? No, no, no. We picked, we picked this car up, right. this truck up. It came out of New Jersey, and we so they bought it, brought it over into Pennsylvania, and did all the repairs on it in PA. Right. And uh, they put all the new parts on it. They, we we did a Carfax and all the title check on it, and everything matched up. Right. The vehicle has 70,000 miles on it, but they put this airbag in it, and I guess when you're in a collision, the computer can it, it records a uh, an accident in the system, and... The accident needs to be cleared, I guess. This is what they're telling no, me. No, it's control well, mod- module supposed to do. If, to my knowledge, no. Uh, you know, the bag, the bag has to be replaced. Sure, the possibly the sensors behind the front bumper. There are crash sensors up there. If they're damaged, and in a lot of cases they are normally replaced, they get replaced. But the electronic module itself generally can be reset or reflashed. If there's an update for it, I should retract that. Not reflash, but it can be cleared and reset if it's just a matter of it having stored a code. I'm not aware of mandatory having to replace a module. That being said, you know, it's possible the module was damaged in the accident, depending upon how the accident occurred, and I don't disagree with that. They're going to put a used one in, though? Uh, No, no, no. They gave us one and it's they gave us the wrong part number so we have to get the right correct one i guess or or take ours out of the vehicle and send it away to be reprogrammed and have the data cleared from it so what the body shop is what what you're really telling me is the body shop doesn't have the ability to do flashing at dealer level from the sounds of it (laughs) i guess you're right right that's really what it is and what what so a, a scan tool can do that a uh, dealer a, level a scan dealer tool? level scan tool I I do it all the time at the shop that's what's kind of got me scratching my head I'm, I'm I'm asking myself what are they trying to sell you here you know well they're uh, they're trying to say they can't go directly into the service port and dial down into that I guess was this they an would ins- literally have to take the unit out who, is that true who, who paid for this Don you or the insurance company. My wife bought this vehicle. Well, but 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 who who paid for the repair? Oh, the people that owned it prior to us. Okay, you know, there's a liability factor here, a huge liability factor, that somebody's released a car with a non-working airbag system, and in a society where, listen, I just heard the other day in New York City that someone rented a bike, one of the Uber bikes in New York City, and he didn't wear he didn't wear a helmet. He crashed, he got hurt, and now he's suing New York City for $60 million, as ridiculous as that is, because he didn't want to wear a helmet. 
They're, they're, he's saying it's their fault. So in a society that's that litigious, I'm amazed that a body shop would release a vehicle with an airbag light on, not you know, not making you sign 47 documents with circles and arrows telling you what's going on and how you can't do this and you're in danger. Because understand, if, if you're getting to another accident and that airbag light's on, which I'm believing it is from your description, it is the airbag. The airbag system doesn't work. You're 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 in a dangerous vehicle at that point. Okay. And, and 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 understand this too. The way modern vehicles are designed, modern vehicles are designed to work with airbags and seat belts based on the way the crush zones or the crash zones are designed at, at on board at the computer. You know, you ever see a NASCAR car the way it gets the nose torn off it, it breaks away. Modern cars yeah. are designed to do the same thing with the idea that the airbag systems themselves are going to work and keep you safe. So, I would get okay. this I would get this to a dealer. I would explain to them what you're explaining to me, and I would get the right module, whatever it takes, and I wouldn't drive the vehicle until it's repaired. And it sounds like it might well, just be able to... we didn't change the original module still under the seat. And the light's still on. And the light's on. Then they may be able to and flash it. And they're telling it. me that it collects data from a crash, and that's why it's throwing that code. Oh, so it might have an... Well, then it might have an internal memory failure fault code that's telling us that. But listen, let's do it like this. Go spend, go spend 120 bucks. Have a dealership diagnose it. Get some diagnosis here because it sounds like these guys are throwing darts at a wall. I'd rather have you safe. Yep. All right. I'd rather All have right, you cool. safe. Let's let's spend some money and uh, you know money well spent. Listen, I spent 148 dollars to have the guys come out and tell me why my roof was leaking and it had nothing to do with anything that I expected it to be. But at least I got the answer. Mm-hmm. So it's it's All it's, right, it's cool. money well spent and uh, clear conscience. All right, sir. If you need any more help, right, if you need you. any more help, shoot me an email, Ron at cardoctorshow.com. 855-560-9900. We're coming back right after this. Cause like a princess, she was laying there. Moonlight dancing off her hand. She woke up and took me by the hand. She's gonna love me in my Chevy van, and that's alright with me. I get around to Ron and Annie and the Car Doctor here at 855-560-9900. Let's get back to the busy phones. Bruce in Manitou Springs. Welcome to the Car Doctor, sir. How can I help? Bruce, are you there? Uh-oh. We lost one. Okay, let's jump right on. Let's keep going. Let's go to Dan Appleton, Wisconsin. Dan, welcome to the Car Doctor, sir. How can I help? Ron, I got a 1992 GMC four-wheel drive pickup. Okay. What, 115000 on. Right. And the headlights on this thing since day one have always been fairly dim. I'm wondering if there's anything I can do about that. Well, dim in that they I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna ask some dumb questions, even though we know there aren't any. Are are they you've owned this since new? Uh it, I bought it when I had fifteen thousand on. Okay. So when you say dim that they're just I mean, the lenses not, are clear. It's not. It's not. Uh, this is. This is a glass. This is a glass light in '92. Yeah, this is the first year of plastic, right? Correct. Right. Yeah, this is the first year of plastic lamps. The lenses aren't discolored or faded or anything like that. Nope. Okay. I um, clean them several times. Okay, and then it, when you say dim, are they dim or do you just think they're standard headlights? 
And it's just a matter uh, of, you know, I'm trying to decide, is this an electrical issue, which is hard to convey on radio, or is this something, uh, you know, where maybe it's just time for a headlight bulb upgrade? Mm-hmm. I changed them one time, but I don't remember the kind I put in there. And okay. I've cleaned up every ground I could find on this truck, thinking maybe it was a ground problem. Right. Well, if you want to, if you want to see if it's a ground problem, one of the easiest things to do is, you know, if you take that headlight out of its socket, and yep. you know, just kind of hold it in your hand. Turn the headlight on. Look at it. How bright is it? All right. Plug, mm-hmm. plug a new one in. How bright is okay. it? It might just be that that's that's as bright as it's going to get. Now, if you have if you have any kind of way to measure amperage, um, not to be too technical, but a typical headlight will pull five to seven amps, and you can mm-hmm. see what sort of current it's flowing. And if it's if it's flowing something other than that, then maybe we'll go and talk about grounds, or maybe provide an alternate ground. Provide an alternate ground right to the battery. Does it change the way the brightness of the lights? Chances are it won't. I've got a feeling you're dealing with 92 headlights, and you're getting used to seeing everybody else on the road blinding you. That you know, maybe you know, what do you do now? And and that wouldn't be totally uncommon. Back about a million years ago, in another life, when we used to aim headlights, in, mm-hmm. inside the Hoppy headlight aiming kit. We actually, and I still have mine, we actually have a candle power device where we can hold it up to the headlight and measure the candle power coming out of the lights, and it'll show you just how bright it is, kind of like what a photographer would have. And, yep. you know, three to 5,000, seven to 8,000, that kind of a thing. And you can, if you can find a repair shop that actually has that, you can see what the candle power rating is on those lights and then make a decision from there. If I were going to upgrade them, I wouldn't go for the top of the line because I find that... The top-of-the-line bulbs, while they're really bright, tend to burn out. They have a shorter lifespan. So what I tend to do is I like the Sylvanias. I think the Sylvania blue bulbs, I don't remember exactly. It's not their top-of-the-line. It's like their middle grade of bulb. I've tried those, Mm -hmm. and I've gotten better results. Or you might look around and see if there's any LED kits. The problem with the LED kits is usually they involve modules and wiring and connectors and you know, I'm very selective on what I will start to incorporate in because I don't want to make it a bigger problem than it already is. Mm-hmm. So, just because I can drive down the road at night with this thing and leave the lights on bright, and nobody will ever flash me. Huh. Now, well, maybe you've got a problem. Let me ask you this Do they change from high beam to low beam? You can see a difference in the brightness? Yes. Okay. Then I would start looking at, I would look at current. See, if, are you really flowing 5 to 7? I would take a look in comparison to a different bulb, and I would consider upgrading to a brighter bulb and go from there. But, you know, basically 92. It's amazing how much better headlights have gotten in the past 20-something years. So appreciate the thoughts, Dan. Let me know how you make out. Let's go over and talk to Michael. Some comments about Tesla. Michael, Ron and Annie in the car, Dr. Sir. How can I help? Hey, Ron. Yes, sir. Yeah, better Teslas. I don't really like them. I, keep, I hear... That they keep catching fire and stuff. Uh, uh, but uh, your guy, I forgot his name, he said you seem to like him. Tesla, I think Tesla's got some good points. I think Tesla is trying to create the future. I think Tesla is trying to make it. And I personally think that what Tesla is doing and a lot of the electric vehicle companies are doing, um, I think that they are... I think they're tied to the space program. I really do. I, th- I, think, I think that what you're seeing is the development of cars that will run around on Mars and other planets. I just think we're just 100 years before that happens. You know, some of the Teslas have caught fire. They have had their failures. 
But I think in the grand scheme of things, that the percentage of failures Tesla has is two percent on a scale of of one to a hundred. And well, I, that's not too bad then. Yeah, I think I think Tesla as look at listen, they're they're recreating how we view the automobile, and I think yeah. they've got to have their due. I don't know that they have their place. I don't know that they're going to be totally accepted by society. But, you know, I've always said, Michael, cars are a lifestyle, and I can prove it. Even in the even in the face of 4 and $5 a gallon gasoline, back when the government had us convinced that it had to be that expensive. Yeah. You know what? People, <laughs> were, people were still buying V8 Suburbans and trucks and F250s, and people like their big cars, and that's that's yeah. the issue. Uh, you know, it's it's you're not going to change things. You got to change society, and that's what Tesla's trying to do. Yeah, I have a question for you, Ron. Real quick. Okay, what did you think about a seventy-five or older Mopar with a V8 340 four-barrel hypo four-speed Posse? I think they were great cars, and you know what? I think if you can find one today, I think you found something that's really kind of neat. There weren't that many around. I'm thinking about, I think they kind of got smogged out early. I think by 73, most of the 340s were gone. They went to become 360s. But um, you know what? I think they were a neat car in terms of their comparison to Camaros and Mustangs of the time. And listen, muscle cars, I could talk about those for a lot more than the two hours I get today. Michael, I appreciate the call, and uh, you keep on listening. We appreciate you being there. 855-560-9900. Ron and Andy and the Car Doctor back right after this. Welcome back. Ron and Andy, the car doctor, as we roll forward this hour. Let's go over to Richard Chelsea May. And Richard, welcome to the car doctor, sir. How can I help? Oh, thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. What's going on? Well, I have a 2016 Chevy Colorado, and the hood bounces. Okay. And um, I've been back to the dealer. They adjusted the rubber bumpers on the front. That didn't help. So they filled the back brace with RTV. That didn't help. Then they filled all the braces with RTV. That didn't do anything. So they told me they'd order me a new hood. And the next day, I get a call from them, said they'd spoke with GM, and they said that a new hood wouldn't help, that that was just part of the, the vehicle. It was the, the nature of the beast. That was the way it worked. It, it might be. So then my question would be, can you drive another, if you drive another 2016, does it do the same thing? Right, and I haven't. Okay, and that's the next step. Now, the reason I took your call and the reason I pushed Harry to get your call up is because I also wanted to throw my hat in the ring and make mention that there is a campaign out for this particular vehicle for, of all things, the hood striker, the the, right. the latch mechanism. Have they talked to you about that where it corrodes and, and, and could fail at some point? Not that I think it's anywhere near that at this stage of the game, but... Um, I just kind of thought it was interesting that the hood striker, which obviously is what holds the hood down, could fail, and you've got an issue with the hood. I just want to make sure the two aren't somehow connected. Right. No, they, they've never mentioned that. Yeah. Ask them about, ask them about campaign. I'll give you the number. It's campaign 15116, hood striker corrosion. Okay. All right. And the program's going to run through the end of December of 2017. 
But ask him about that and just say, hey, does any of that have anything to do with this? And if not, drive another 2016 and see what that does. I always like to do that as a comparison on a brand-new vehicle when they tell me, hey, that's the nature of the beast, and sometimes it is. And um, that sort of leads to the diagnostic conclusion of, yeah, it is what it is. So I, uh, I wish you the best of luck, Richard, and I thank you for being part of the Car Doctor family. I'm Ron Anini and the Car Doctor. The mechanics aren't expensive. They're priceless. See ya. See ya.